This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with renowned American science writer David Quarman. David joined me to talk about his prescient 2012 book, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. We discuss why zoonotic spillovers that cause diseases like COVID-19 are occurring more and more, as well as what humans must do to prevent the next pandemic, including rethinking our relationship with nature and stopping the destruction and disruption of our environment. Great pleasure to be with you and to be with your listeners in the Melbourne area. Thank you very much, David, for joining us. And um, is it nighttime over there in Montana? It's just uh, it's just dusk. Okay. It's about uh, six forty-five p.m. on a on a spring evening, and uh, the sun is just about to dip down. Oh, it sounds beautiful. That's so lovely. And uh, I know that. Um, some people might not be aware of Montana, but there is um, some beautiful natural environment uh, in your area as well. Do you, being a science writer, get much time to appreciate uh, where you live? Well, I've lived here for 40 years or so, and the reason I live here is because of the mountains and the rivers and the landscape and the wildlife. I don't get as much time to appreciate it as I used to, uh, or as I wish, but yes, it's very important to me. And a matter of fact, mm. I... I was in uh, I was in Tasmania for the month of February, and I always I love Tasmania, and I always think of Tasmania as sort of the the sister state down under of Montana because Montana is is green with mountains, and uh, uh, I know there are parts of mainland Australia that are also green with mountains, but uh, Tasmania with its particular spirit and its landscape, uh, not to take anything away from Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tasmania, Tasmania makes me feel a little bit like I'm at my home away from home in Australia. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, I know that a lot of uh, Melburnians have been making the move over to Tasmania, so I don't think we'll be that offended. Um, but we do have <laughs> <laughs> we have some stunning, really beautiful uh, forests here with some very cool temperate uh, forests and some hugely uh, tall towering gum trees here, uh, mountain ash forests and that kind of thing. So we do have some of our own things that we are proud of, but Tasmania is pretty special and uh, it's very biodiverse, so I can understand why you uh, fell in love with it so much. But I've spent a lot of time in Queensland and a fair amount of time in Northern Territory too. Right. I'm a, a great appreciator of the varied landscapes of Australia. I'm so glad that you've had a chance to to take multiple trips down here. And you do reference that in this book, Spillover. It really is the beginning of the book. It's all about Australia. And you talk about the Hendra virus and how that all came about. And it is a really intriguing story that um, it's very gripping. And I thought it was a fantastic way to start the book, not just because it's relevant to us over here in Australia, but the human stories that you bring into these zoonotic virus issues are really um, fascinating and bring to life the story. Right, and the first uh, the first outbreak of Hendra was a very, very dramatic event, as Australians know or may remember, um, and it was also a textbook example of the phenomenon of zoonotic diseases, dangerous viruses and other pathogens that can spill over from wild animals, sometimes passing through domestic animals as amplifier hosts, getting into humans and causing causing uh, illness and death in humans. Uh, 
Kendra is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a small phenomenon in terms of numbers, gratefully, blessedly for Australians and others around the world, that virus doesn't transmit well between humans, but it is a very dramatic um, phenomenon, a very dramatic disease. And, and that's why I opened my book with, with it, because it's, it's got high drama, it's got some fascinating human characters, and it exemplifies these principles of zoonotic diseases so well. Mm. And uh, that's so true. It is a really horrific virus. And even more, it's um, pretty shocking because you highlight the stories of a couple of people who were lucky enough to survive the virus the first time around and had a period of remission where they were well or at least not in the grips of this infection, although feeling a bit under the weather very much seemed to have been past the virus, and then up to a year later um, had a second round. It's pretty scary, I guess. It's it's very scary. It was the husband of a a veterinarian, if I recall correctly. I haven't reread my own book in a few years. Um, and I didn't expect it was going to be so relevant uh, going into this year. Um, but it was the husband of, of a veterinarian. She had taken care of some Hendra infected horses, or at least one. Uh, and he helped her. He got infected, recovered, if I recall correctly. And then a year later, went down and died from the disease a year later. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's not a, an, an unprecedented phenomenon. Ebola virus also we now understand, is able to linger in people in certain parts of a person's body. For instance, at the back of the eyeball, which is what they call an immune-privileged area, a place where our, our immune systems don't police up things. And and so Ebola virus can linger at the back of a person's eyeball for, oh, I think it's three months, uh, and, and also in the reproductive system. So there's a, there's a concern that Ebola can be spread through sex, through sexual transmission, months after a person has apparently recovered from Ebola virus. And so these viruses like Kendra and like Ebola, they hold a lot of they hold a lot of terror, they hold a lot of potential injury and death, but they hold a lot of mystery too. And and the book is a, is largely about solving those mysteries. Yes, it, gosh, it is so shocking to think that and and I guess must put a lot of people on edge if they think they've gotten past such a deadly virus with a very high mortality rate like Ebola does, that really they may not be past the worst of it and that they would have to, um, I guess, moderate their behaviour and their contact with other people for such a, a long time into the future. I want to touch on Hendra just briefly and then we can get into some of the theory around zoonotic viruses and how this is going to relate to the environmental issues we're talking about. Um, But one of the things that fascinated me about your explanation of Hendra and uh, why it went from bats to horses and then horses to humans. And you were writing about the fact that you believe Hendra is probably an old virus, according to the runic evidence of its genome, which was read by molecular evolutionists. And um, you were talking about the fact that bats are an ancient part of the native fauna in Australia, um, having been in Queensland uh, for at least 55 million years. And you highlight the fact that the presence of humans, obviously, in Australia has been here for quite a long time, certainly the Indigenous population of Australia, but in uh, a relative sense, not as recent, still quite a long time. And then you bring things 
down to the introduction of horses from the uh, First Fleet and the settlement over here in New South Wales in Sydney and highlight Mm -hmm. the fact that horses are really, really new to Australia in that relative time scale. Could you explain to us how that is relevant to how, you know, an old disease that might be living within a host that is kind of benignly living within an old host like a bat that's been in Australia for, you know, millennia can then find an opportunity in another animal and why that might be a horse or a human? Right. So we have uh, we have a great diversity of viruses living in all kinds of wildlife around the world. Uh, Several, probably several, scientists don't know exactly how many, but possibly several or more unique viruses in each different species of wildlife, including bats. And bats are a very old group of animals. So there are many viruses that live in bats without causing any apparent disease, any apparent illness in bats. Why is that? Well, it's probably because the bats and the virus have reached an accommodation, an evolutionary accommodation over long stretches of time so that the particular virus lives within a particular species of bat inconspicuously at relatively low levels, relatively low concentrations, maintaining itself but not not replicating as abundantly as it might. So it's there. And we call that bat then that uh, that is carrying that virus, we call it the reservoir host or the natural host of that virus. All viruses come from somewhere, from some living creature. So if there's a new virus to humans, it had to come from somewhere, and usually that means it has come from a wild animal. Bats are the reservoir hosts, a couple different species of your giant fruit bats, including, I believe, the spectacled fruit bat, are reservoir hosts of Hendra virus, this virus that does not seem to make them sick, been living in them a long time. Has it ever spilled over into humans before in the course of the the whole Aboriginal people's history of Australia? Well, possibly. We don't know. I don't know that there's any any record of that in Aboriginal oral tradition. Uh, There might be, but I haven't heard about it. It's possible that uh, it occurred, but it did not get noticed very much because people had uh, other things to to make them sick, and it was kind of mysterious, this, this virus. But then, first of all, then Europeans arrive, and then Europeans bring horses, and that changes circumstances. And then one day in 1994, some virus spills over from a giant fruit bat and gets into a single horse, a mare known as Drama Series, who, because she was in full, she was pregnant. She was pastured out on a meadow, a paddock, I guess you call it, in the sun, kept there during her pregnancy, and there was only one tree. And she would go under that tree for shade. That tree turned out to be a fig tree. Bats would come to feed on the figs. They would drop fig pulp. They would drop uh, their feces and their urine onto the grass. That single mare fed on some of that grass, picked up a dose of the virus, and she got very sick. As she got sick, her trainer brought her back into a stables that he was running in the suburb of Hendra. And the stables owner was a fellow named Vic Rail. He had two fellows working with him on this sick horse, a veterinarian named Peter Reed, a wonderful man, and a stable foreman named Ray Unwin, the very charming bloke himself. These three men worked on these horses as they got sicker and sicker. A dozen of them got 
desperately sick with bloody foam. They were dying. The three men were trying to save them. Two of the men got sick. Ray Unwin got sick and went home. Uh, Vic Rail got sick and went into the hospital and then died. And he became the first known fatality, at least in modern times, the first fatality of Hendra virus. And Peter Reed, when I visited Australia, Peter Reed was the one who told me the story. He took me out to that original paddock, and it was now a suburb, but in the middle of one of the traffic circles was a fig tree. Peter Reed pointed to it and said to me, that's it. That's the bloody tree. Yeah, and it's shocking, really, to think that this confluence of events can bring about such a huge disease, a catastrophic disease, really, in terms of how it behaves in horses and in human bodies. It's pretty uh, horrible to read about the effects and how painful and agonising the death is for these horses and for humans. And I was interested in the fact that we in Australia have Hendra and there have been other zoonotic viruses where bats have been involved and they seem to have been getting a bad name and some unfair press in terms of their role. And it's interesting to see that bats have kind of become a little bit like the bad guy in our recent experiences as well. I'm wondering if you could share with us how bats given that they are the reservoir host, first of all, why are they and why do they hold such a diversity of viruses within them? And are mm -hmm. they all that bad? Right. Well, first of all, why do bats seem to be overly represented as reservoir hosts of these dangerous viruses? As you mentioned, uh, Hendra virus reservoir host is bats. I believe Australian bat lysivirus is related to rabies. Um, in Malaysia, you have Nipah virus, uh, reservoir host in bats, Marburg virus, bats. This new coronavirus seems to have come from a bat. So they seem to be highly represented. Part of the reason for that is that bats are an extraordinarily diverse order of mammals. One in every four species of mammal is a species of bat. So they're overrepresented just in mammal diversity. Uh, but in addition to that, bats live long lives. They might live 18 or 20 years which is long for a small mammal. And they, they roost together in great aggregations, either in trees or sometimes in caves, piled upon one another, close together. So living long and aggregating closely, very close social contact, those are circumstances that allow viruses to recirculate through a population rather than ever burning out of a population. The virus is constantly cycling through some member of this closely uh, social uh, population. In addition to that, there's a hypothesis that bats' immune systems are less sensitive, more, um, more forgiving of strange elements in their bodies. Um, and the reason for that would be because they're the only flying mammals. That puts certain kinds of physiological stress on bats, and their immune systems would be reacting to that physiological stress with autoimmune disease constantly if the immune systems of bats were as sensitive as those of other mammals, including humans. Uh, so there, this is a hypothesis, but it's persuasive that bats over evolutionary time have downregulated their immune systems, have evolved immune systems that are less sensitive so they don't suffer autoimmune disease constantly. And one 
side effect of that is they may be more tolerant of viruses. So you put those things together, and yes, bats probably are, in an absolute sense, overrepresented as reservoir hosts. Does that mean we should kill bats? No, absolutely not. Exactly the wrong conclusion. Uh, bats are wonderful, magnificent creatures. Um, they serve a lot of ecological purposes in our diverse ecosystems. They help to control insects. They help to pollinate trees. Uh, bats are bats are valuable. They deserve to live. So, so the the, the conclusion, the moral of this whole um, situation is not that we should kill bats because they carry viruses. Is that we should stay away from bats. We should leave bats alone. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I was uh, really interested in one of the studies that you quote from the University of Edinburgh looking at different diseases and they were looking at 1,407 recognised species of human pathogen and found that zoonotic bugs account for 58% of those pathogens and that really of the full total of 1,407, just 177 can be considered emerging or re-emerging. Uh, Three-fourths of those emergent pathogens are zoonotic. And so as you say, in plain words, show me a strange new disease and most likely I can show you a zoonosis. Why is it the case that uh, zoonotic viruses in particular are so prevalent and are those that are emerging, that are new and particularly, I'm thinking, new to humans? Right. Well, as I said, all wild animals carry their own viruses, their own unique viruses. Nobody knows exactly how many, but many. So there are millions of viruses unknown to us that live in our diverse ecosystems within other animals. Uh, and for, so for the 200,000 years of, of human existence, we have occasionally encountered those viruses and they have spilled over into humans and we have gotten sick. But it seems to be happening much more frequently in recent decades, particularly in the last 60 years. And I could recite uh, a whole list of these spillovers that have occurred since 1960. You know, Machupo virus in, in Bolivia and uh, Marburg virus in uh, Uganda 1967 and Ebola virus and Nipah virus and Hendra virus and SARS virus and MERS virus. More and more, that seems to be happening. Why is that? Well, because we are now much more of a big target on this planet. There are 7.7 billion humans on this planet. We're more numerous, probably almost certainly, than any other large-bodied animal, single species of animal, has ever been in the history of life on Earth. We're a huge target. And we are, we are smart, we're hungry, we're demanding of resources, so we are disrupting the diverse ecosystems far more than ever. There are four times as many humans as there were at the time of the 1918 influenza pandemic, four times as many. So we are disrupting these wild diverse ecosystems, uh, including these animals that carry these strange viruses. We're putting ourselves in contact with those animals. We're putting ourselves therefore in contact with those viruses. We're offering those viruses the opportunity to make a, a leap or a bounce from their natural host, their reservoir host, into humans as a new kind of host. And if a virus manages to do that, given the opportunity, then that virus, uh, one, one public health official said to me, that virus has, has grabbed the golden ticket. 
that virus has won the sweepstakes. Because if it comes out of an endangered species and it gets into humans, suddenly it has 7.7 billion potential hosts closely interconnected, living in dense concentrations in cities, traveling all the time. We are just a great opportunity for viruses. So the more we disrupt the wild ecosystems, shake the trees, as it were, uh, shaking loose these strange viruses and offer ourselves there as alternative hosts, the more these things are going to happen. It's interesting that you highlight so many of the examples of how humans are not just large in number, but also consuming more and consuming resources within nature. And there are examples that you've given like uh, mining sites in Africa and their proximity to uh, savannas and to jungles and forests where there is a huge level of, of biodiversity in some of these environments. And also, you know, the human impacts on things like deforestation. There are so many, I guess, ways that humans can shake the tree, as you say. What are some of those that you consider to be the most important, the ones that create the most risk for that uh, potential for spillover? Well, all of the choices we make, all of us humans, have impact on this phenomenon. You know, some people are inclined to say, well, you know, this latest thing, this horrible pandemic, it started by some Chinese people who wanted to eat bats or wanted to eat pangolins, and they dismiss it as something for which they have no responsibility. Well, they may not have responsibility for this particular spillover, but all of us have a share of the responsibility for this broader phenomenon with all the choices that we make, what we eat, what we wear, what we buy, whether we own a cell phone or not, how many children we have, if we choose to have children, how much we travel, all of those choices determine the pressure that we put on the natural world. And take just one example that you sort of alluded to, Amy. If we own a cell phone or a laptop computer, then we are customers for a mineral called coltan, C-O-L-T-A-N, which is essential to making tantalum capacitors in those electronic devices. Where does coltan come from? Well, just a few places around the world it's mined, one of them being in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, near, as you said, extremely diverse Central African forests containing lowland gorillas and multiple species of monkeys and porcupines and pangolins and rodents and bats. So when we buy a cell phone, we commission a miner to go into those areas, those forested areas, and mine coltan for us. We're putting demand on the chain of supply for coltan. What is that miner going to eat in that mining camp? Uh, is, is that miner going to be satisfied with, with rice and with manioc? No. That miner is going to want protein, going to need protein. That miner is going to eat bushmeat, possibly including bats, rodents, pangolins, whatever. And so all of us, with the choices that we make, including a choice to own a cell phone, are part of the supply and demand that brings humans into closer and disruptive contact with the wild animals that carry dangerous viruses that in some cases can spill over and spread around the world. Yeah, that's a really great example, isn't it? To show that we have such a strong and active role to play in changing our own fate when it comes to these major, and in this case, global pandemic, 
I know that a lot of scientists have been saying, and you have been, you know, speaking with these scientists through your role about what the next global pandemic might be and what those conditions would be to create, I guess, a, a horrible situation, a kind of mass disruption and uh, an increase in mortality, a large, very deadly virus. That was obviously in the lead up to this one that we are now experiencing of uh, SARS-CoV-2, which causes the COVID-19 disease. And one of the discussions has been around coronaviruses. And uh, of course, you do come cover um, the SARS coronavirus from 2003 in your book. It's part four, I believe, in your book. And it does provide some kind of illumination into what may happen in the future. And obviously, this was published in 2012. Um, and, and the concerns around coronaviruses, because as you write, it is a, a single-stranded RNA virus. And uh, as we know, coronaviruses can cause the common cold, um, but they can also cause diseases like SARS that we saw, that obviously was uh, quite deadly, but not on the scale that we're currently experiencing in terms of the, the number of infections we've seen. Can you explain and share with us those concerns that have been within the scientific community, those virus hunters as well, who've been actually looking at viruses and where they might come from next, and uh, how we already kind of knew that this could have been a, a real possibility? Right. Well, uh, as you say, SARS 2003 was a warning. It was a coronavirus. It came, we learned afterwards, it came out of bat of a bat in southern China. Uh, it spread from Hong Kong to Toronto, to Beijing, to Singapore. It infected 8,000 people and killed uh, a little less than 800 for a 10% case fatality rate. So it was a very dangerous virus, but it didn't spread as readily as this one. But it was a warning. And uh, when I was researching this book, as you said, it came out in 2012. I spent about five years on this book, and I traveled the world talking to the disease detectives, talking to the scientists who study these things, and asking them at uh, various different points to hypothesize what would the next big one look like? Would there be a next big global pandemic? And if so, what would it look like? And as I describe in the book, they variously gave me answers to that question. And, and if you took a composite of the answers they gave me to the question about the next big one, the next big global pandemic, it would be essentially this. Yes, there will be a next big one. Yes, it'll be caused by a virus a virus that comes out of an animal, what kind of an animal, a wild animal, what kind of a wild animal, very possibly a bat, what kind of a virus? Well, a kind of virus that can evolve relatively quickly, for instance, an influenza virus or, oh, a coronavirus. Coronaviruses should be considered on the watch list because of the example of SARS. And how would this happen, this spillover from a non-human animal into humans? Well, it would happen somewhere where humans are disturbing wild animals capturing them, transporting them, for instance, to a wet market in a place such as, oh, for instance, China. So that's all in my book, published 2012. The warnings were there. The evidence was there. Uh, the scientists knew it. But 
the leaders, the political leaders, didn't pay attention to it. Public health officials knew it. They knew that this was coming. They didn't know when, but they knew that this was a very high likelihood, a pandemic of exactly the sort that we're suffering now. They were warning about it. They were warning about coronaviruses. Public health people picked up those warnings and amplified them and spoke with policy people, spoke with national leaders. And the national leaders in too many cases, not all cases, but in too many cases, including in my country, chose not to make preparations for that because preparations are expensive and they cost you political capital as well as money. Although I should add quickly, nowhere near as expensive as COVID-19 now is proving to be. Yeah, exactly. The the human cost and the economic cost. And mm-hmm. there are a whole other set of costs like the social cost that we are currently experiencing as well. You highlight in that chapter a really uh, great team led by a Chinese virologist named Wendong Li and also includes an Australian, uh, Hume Field, who found the reservoir host of Hendra virus, which we've been discussing mm-hmm. and was a bat. And you joined their field work and went to southern China, which does have a really unique weather or climate and a very diverse ecosystem over there. And certainly even um, their cultural preferences for food and eating is very different to parts of northern China, which are not the same at all in terms of their interest in um, the more exotic wildlife type uh, meats and produce. And I was wondering um, about your experience traveling through Guilin and tagging along in those trips to the caves over there, looking for bats and trying to find the next viruses that might become a big global pandemic and what you observed when you were part of that trip. That's right. As you say, I, I, travel, I traveled with the scientists who study these things. Um, I traveled with, uh, well, I traveled with an, an Australian scientist named Raina Plowright to the Northern Territory as she was researching Hendra. Uh, I traveled into the Congo with a fellow researching Ebola, and I traveled into China with um, an American scientist named Alexei Chimura and his Chinese colleagues. Uh, a number of Chinese colleagues, and we went to, uh, in the province of Guangzhou in southern China, we went to the city of Guilin. We went to bat caves outside of the city because Alexei wanted to collect uh, bats and sample them for evidence of the SARS virus, the original SARS virus of 2003. So I found myself uh, wriggling on my belly through a little gap in the ground into a karst formation, following these young men into this cave, and we got inside of it, and it opened out a bit, and there were these small bats. Some of them were horseshoe bats flying around our heads, and Alexei and his colleagues started netting them and putting them into um, cloth bags and handing me the cloth bags to hang on a sort of a clothesline stick looking for the SARS virus and uh, didn't find it on that trip. And I'm not sure whether that was good luck or bad luck. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and I know that you have also been part of those trips looking for the Ebola virus as well, which sounded very scary in, in some regards, given that uh, a number of gorillas died out and um, almost basically disappeared. So it was kind of difficult to trap and take samples from non-existent gorillas. That's right. That was in, uh, that was in 
um, northeastern Gabon along the Mambili River with a scientist named Billy Karish, who was going back to an area where gorillas and chimpanzees suffer from Ebola as bad as badly as humans do. And uh, there was an area where a gorilla population had been devastated by Ebola, and Billy Karish wanted to go back in there and find the remaining gorillas and tranquilize Dartsam and take blood samples and look for Ebola antibodies from these surviving gorillas. So we went in there and we camped in the jungle for eight days, and we didn't find any surviving gorillas in this area that had been filled with gorillas before the Ebola outbreak. Yeah, and it's kind of scary. And obviously there were a number of um, carcasses of gorillas that locals had found, but also I believe you or your colleagues had seen a, a couple of them at least. And uh, and there were evidences um, eventually of Ebola virus and antibodies to the Ebola virus. Um, but it's been very difficult to actually capture that when the Ebola virus is uh, – is alive in the populations, in human populations, and when the disease is really at its most rampant, um, it becomes difficult to capture and find out where that reservoir host might be. That's right. There are two phases of, of responding to Ebola. One is the, the public health and the medical phase, when there is an outbreak of Ebola among humans, such as the terrible Ebola epidemic in West Africa in 2014 in those three countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and uh, uh, Liberia. And uh, so there were lots of public health people there, medical responders. Uh, people were dying. Uh, the World Health Organization was was there. Uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders were there. It was a terrible medical emergency. And in a situation like that, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to work on the scientific question of where does this virus live when it's not infecting humans? What is its reservoir host, the mystery of Ebola's reservoir host? What animal does it hide in? And so you can't do that during an outbreak like that because it's a human medical emergency. And then when the outbreak is over, when the, the, the spillover is contained, uh, and you could go in and work hard on the question of the ecology of the Ebola virus, where does it hide, then the money goes away, the interest goes away, the urgency goes away. Not completely, but that's an important constraint on the effort to solve the mystery of where does the Ebola virus live. It is suspected to live now in large fruit bats, but I haven't seen the gold standard evidence for that yet, so it's still, I'd say, a bit of a mystery. Mm, yeah, it, it'll be really interesting to see if we do ever get that hard, concrete evidence um, about it. But you do raise there a really important point, which is the fact that when we're in the thick of a pandemic or even an epidemic, um, local or global, this becomes a really urgent issue and everyone's mind is very much attuned and focused at how important it is and the, I guess, real-life consequences of human life and sometimes, of course, animal life as well. I'm interested in that and how we can learn from this and uh, utilise the attention and the urgency that we currently are experiencing with this COVID-19 disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2 um, that is, of course, a, a bit of a relative of SARS, the initial coronavirus from 2003 that was from Asia as, as well. What can we learn and what should we be looking to ask or demand from our political leaders uh, in terms of 
concrete kind of actions that that they can take and also the things that we can do? Well, there's a famous quote from an American um, politician, a former mayor of Chicago, who at one point was chief of staff for Bill Clinton during his presidency, Rahm Emanuel, and he said, you should let no crisis go to waste. Uh, and there were a lot of crises during Bill Clinton's mm. presidency. Um, so this is a crisis. This is a global crisis, and we have to we have to we have to deal with it. We have to solve it. We have to save lives and stop the further spread, and get past this. But we also have to learn from it. We have to change, and I hope that we will. As terrible as this this pandemic is, and as it seems likely to get more terrible. We have to be ready as soon as we got it under control to start planning for the next one. We've got to be ready to make adjustments, serious adjustments to the way we 7.7 billion humans live on this planet. We can't go on believing that that this entire planet um, is just a, a carton of ice cream for us to eat to the very bottom, because the closer we get to the bottom, the more trouble we're going to have with, for instance, pandemic viruses. We have to learn to control our population growth, control our consumption, live more lightly on the planet, uh, live less disruptively in our interactions with the natural world, preserve that for ecological reasons, for public health reasons, and also for philosophical and, and aesthetic reasons. We don't want to leave to our descendants a planet that is boring, lonely and ugly compared to the planet that we live in now. So I hope that serious changes will come after this pandemic. I hope that we will come alert to what we have been doing and we will make adjustments in our expectations and our demands and in our preparations for uh, the next pandemic because this is not the last. There will be more, more of these challenges that we have to be prepared for. But that shouldn't be the only kind of change that we make. Yes, exactly. It requires really a whole systemic change in terms of the way that we see our our environment and the fact that we are absolutely another animal, a human animal in an ecosystem with other animals and with uh, nature and and plants and fungi. And uh, I think it's been too easy in an Anthropocene where humans have been the dominant force and um, asserting a huge amount of dominance over the environment that we've kind of become complacent and not realised how reliant we are on our own planet on our own environment. I know it sounds very obvious, but I'm not sure whether we really understand that yet. Uh, it does sound obvious. It is obvious. And I agree with you. It's, it's very uncertain as to whether we do understand that. Um, but maybe this horrific experience is going to um, shake us awake. I hope so, Amy. Yeah, I do too. Just finally, I know that you mentioned that there are some great science projects that don't get funded and that also those teams that you went out with looking for um, the origins or the reservoir hosts of viruses, um, that those teams are very much chronically underfunded and that they're really um, funded in a cyclical sense when things become urgent, like we're seeing now, and then become less urgent after pandemics and after big events. There was one that uh, you've mentioned recently, the Global Virome Project, and I was just wondering if there are some of those groups and scientists that you are familiar with that you would uh, like to draw attention to and um, that we can look uh, into. Uh, 
Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, starting with Australia, um, you have some wonderful scientists there. You mentioned Hume Field. I mentioned Raina Plowright. She's now based in the U.S. There are a number of others at your different universities, and your 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 very very important lab at Geelong that studies the the animal Australian Animal Health Laboratory mm. at Geelong. Uh, I would say the first thing I could say is Australians, for the love of God, um, cherish. An institution like that and support it support it politically support it with your votes support it with your tax dollars and don't be like uh, like us in the US uh, tightening the strings of budget around our our CDC our Centers for Disease Control uh, cutting grants that have been made to um, to various different organizations and agencies of government. Now, apart from that, all that, I don't want to sound uh, too political here, but it's important for us to be citizens um, and and to, to exercise um, critical judgment about priorities. I'd place this as a very high priority for, for citizens. There are other great organizations that are working around the world. One of them that is among my favorites is EcoHealth Alliance, based in New York but working all around the world, working in southern China. Um, the Alexei Chamora, with whom I went into southern China, works for them. Jonathan Epstein, with whom I went into Bangladesh, looking for Nipah virus, works for them. Um, Billy Karish, with whom I went into the Congo, didn't used to work for them, but he does now. So EcoHealth Alliance deserves um, being known and, um, and being supported. But the many conservation organizations you have in, in Australia – People who are working to save the rainforest, to protect the wonderful native forests, for instance, the eucalypt forest of Australia, places where giant fruit bats normally live if the forest is still there. They only come to the suburbs of Brisbane, such as Hendra, if their own wild habitat is destroyed. Then they come toward people looking for sources of fruit and other food. Um, so Australia, treasure your Treasure your wild ecosystems, the Cape York Peninsula, the forests of, uh, of Queensland generally, uh, the Northern Territory, the wonderful forests down in Tassie where I was in February. Um, one of the things you can do is support the organizations that protect your own biologically rich ecosystems and thereby keep those viruses living in those animals where they should be. Yeah, that's such a great message. David, thank you so much for your time. It's been really valuable to hear from you. I'm so glad that we did get a chance to speak and uh, absolutely commend you on the wonderful science writing you've been doing, not just with this book, Spillover, but also so many of your other books that have been really well received. And is it any wonder? Because I thoroughly enjoyed reading this one and I very much look forward to reading your other works. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for the for the opportunity to talk with you and, and your listeners. Um, be well, everybody. Stay safe, stay sane, keep smiling. <laughs> you too. Thank you so much, David. I've Cheers. been I've been speaking there with David Quaman, an American science writer and journalist, and he's the author of Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, which was published in 2012 and which he said, of course, he was working on for five years. And it definitely shows it's um, a very fulsome book. It covers a whole range of viruses, uh, including Ebola, 
Hendra, HIV, which is a, a zoonotic virus as well. Um, it covers SARS. There's so many examples. It also talks about epidemiology and so many other elements to this story and, uh, and evolution, genetic evolution. There's just so much and it's such a rich book. And I've got to say, when reading science, um, it's sometimes difficult to get into, but this book is one of the most engaging and one of the most beautifully written science books I've ever read. And I had to um, pause many times during my preparation for this interview just to take in how wonderfully written and researched it was. So I do hope you get a chance to read it if this is of interest to you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.